Hello everyone, today is November 5th, 2009. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Ela Feet, Assistant Professor at the Center for Learning and Memory at UT Austin, where she studies neural computa- computation and network dynamics. Hi, Ela. Hello. Around the room, we've got Fidel Santamaria. Hi. Todd Troyer. Hello. Michael Ferris. Hello. Rama Rutnam. Hi, Salma. And me, I'm your host, Salma Qureshi. So, Ela, your, um, your work on neural coding has two predominant strains, one that follows motor learning and songbirds, and the other that looks at position coding and navigation in rats. I thought um, we could all first talk about principles of coding, using these two systems to illustrate the range of coding schemes, how they're optimized, what features of a system determine, whether one is favored over another, etc. We can get started there, or uh, if you want me to boil it down to slightly more specific questions. No, that, um, that's, a, that's, a great, that's a great starting point. Uh, okay. In fact, that's, uh, I've worked on dynamics, but uh, my more recent love interest in uh, neural science is uh, study of codes. Uh, I think um, what, one thing that's been neglected a lot is studying how um, different coding schemes have very different properties. So um, it's not the case that a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Uh, I think uh, different prop- different codes have properties that differ um, either in capacity, how much they can encode, um, and how easy they are to be read out by a downstream area, for example. Or um, maybe they're optimized for the kind of computation that the brain area is trying to perform with the variable that's encoded. So even though the brain has a lot of neurons, so in principle, it might be able to encode a given variable in many possible ways. I think that by studying not just what is encoded, but why the specific code that is being used is used, I think that sheds a lot of light into what the priorities are of, of the brain. Um, so how do you study how the, how do you study the why? So usually the, all the people that study the codes, right? So it's e- pretty easy. You just like either the motor end or the sensory end, you vary a lot of stuff and then see how they're related, right? That's right. So I would say that the answer to that, th- that question, the, those studies are answering what, what, what is the code or what is encoded, right? But they're not studying the why, as you ask, which is, um, you know, the same information could have been encoded a very different way. So why encoded that way? So you're right that why is not really the realm of science. We can't say why, but we can at least ask what are the properties of that code? So you could say, um, uh, for example, one of the systems that I've looked at um, in the past in, in songbirds is uh, temple coding of song in this very high-level premotor area called HVC. And there, the coding is very, very uh, sparse. It's very strange. It's each neuron just fires once in time, and um, another neuron fires at some different time and so on. But uh, the neurons aren't doing something like firing multiple times during the song. So the why question there is, why not a denser code? And um, what are the properties of this sparse coding? Uh, the answer that we're um, able to find, uh, the, and, and experiments will have to bear out whether or not our particular answer for why is correct, is that um, although sparse codes come at a cost of capacity, how much uh, sequence can be uh, learned uh, or stored or represented, um, it does make learning easier. So learning of downstream maps and representations can be easier when the top level representation is very sparse. And I think that's something we see again and again. It's high level areas, uh, high level representations in the brain tend to be sparse. 
there are studies that show that there, um, you know, there's a cells in MTL. There are Jennifer Aniston cells uh, that respond to Jennifer Aniston, but very few other inputs. I understand from uh, your work that there is a, a trade-off in, in this coding scheme between rapidity of learning and how much you can learn in principle. Uh, but I think songbirds offer uh, a good system for actually testing that because there is such a wide variety of learning capabilities. And one uh, species that occurs to me, which is sadly I know so, I only know about them anecdotally, but it's mockingbirds who seem to have an amazing capacity for learning all kinds of uh, vocalizations. And uh, I, do you know anything about how, the rate at which they're able to learn that? And do you think that's consistent with what you would say about HVC codes? Uh, that's a wonderful question. That's a question that I've asked um, many people, including people who have been in the field for a long time. So Mark Kanishi is someone that I was uh, shared a building with in Caltech. And um, he mentioned that the two birds that he would most like to study, ideally, would be mockingbirds and the nightingale. And both of them have very large capacities. And um, But unfortunately, he didn't have an answer to the first time when they learn, how fast do they actually learn? So um, the, the trade-off between capacity and, and learning speed is the learning speed part is about first learning the motor map, first learning what high-level code produces what sounds, right? Or learning to produce certain sounds with that high-level code. And um, exactly, so the prediction would be that in those birds that have, you know, much longer um, songs, much more repertoire, they they have to sit on this trade-off somehow, and somehow maybe the first time they ever learn to vocalize and, uh, and, and, uh, and produce reproducibly a song, it takes them longer the first time around. I don't know the answer to that. Maybe you do. I, do I don't. Uh, so I, I imagine that they're, they're, once they maybe attain this capability, I think that they're pretty fast. I mean, then they're fast at learning so, new songs. So That's it would right. seem that which, what you would argue is that... Um, in mockingbirds, there's a two-stage, or, or a bird like that, there's a two-stage process that's not present in zebra finches, where there's uh, a learning a, a, a relationship between HVC activity and very small acoustic elements that's learned, and then it can, and when it mocks something, it recombines those pre-learned elements very rapidly. Is that's that exactly right. That's right. So that's something that the zebra finch doesn't do. It, it learns literally one utter, uh, utterance, and, and that's all. So unlike human infants, where once they learn how to say the sound ba. They can use the sound ba in many words. They can say ba ba black sheep, or they can say um, what's another word that starts with the ba <laughs> or bad, right? They can they can or say many. Studying zebra finches too much. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so so human infants, yeah, they have the stage where they first learn exactly as you say the first mapping of some abstract neural representation to short sounds, and then they can recombine that in novel ways very rapidly once they've learned the, the first one. Um, and, uh, yeah. Fidel. So, well, I just want to go back a little bit uh, to this why question. I, I think it, every time somebody asks the question why, science is basically an evolutionary question. All right? it's, it's not that it's why in itself. is how come there, these animals use this specific strategy and when you pose a question that way, uh, uh, then you can interpret the, the code that they implement within their ecology. Yes. Right? So, mockingbirds might probably have as far as or not code, but then their brains can, could have evolved to uh, 
make that learning faster, right? And they will implement a different a different rule that will compensate for what you, your work has stated. It seems that zebra finches, they don't have any evolutionary pressure right now. And as long as scientists keep studying them because of that reason, they won't have any evolutionary pressure, right, to, to evolve. So they, they, have been, they have become efficient to, to use this sparse code. And it will be, I mean, it will be, I don't even know. I mean, I don't, I don't know too much about uh, bird songs, but uh, are they, are they, is there an evolutionary history of bird song? Um, I, th I think there's a very rich evolutionary history of birdsong and people like Eric Jarvis mm. and others who study um, actually evolutionary ecology and um, anatomy of these songbirds will be able to tell you um, a lot more about how a lot of these structures evolved. And, um, um, but I, uh, I, I, think, I think you're spot on about um, saying that a lot of optimization arguments in biology have to be, all, have to be viewed through the perspective of evolution. Right, because ultimately that is the function that's optimized in biology. So um, it, it's true that a lot of optimality arguments have to be taken in that context. But I'd like to maybe argue that in some systems, the, the system, the code is so optimized, it may actually be optimal, objectively speaking, divorced from just a specific uh, evolutionary that what we have found and using information theory, right? And like if all flies are super efficient for anything and even bees are almost you apply information theory and you find like the fastest rates of uh, the coding right? yeah yeah so i mean i think those are nice examples mm -hmm. where you don't have to then go back to the evolutionary argument you don't have to say that it's optimal with respect to a specific constraint but hopefully there's some computations that we could just say um with some very general agreed upon constraints are quite optimal so Maybe this would be a good place to segue to grid cells, or would you prefer to stay? Uh, actually, I had a couple yeah. of questions. A little technical here. You know, yeah. get a little technical here. So I, I just was intrigued by the the idea that you have this uh, you have this unary core versus a non unary core, mm -hmm. right? And one is Lantel, so this descriptor it's L, so you know, the other is two to the power L, right? If you use a non unary non unary code, you yes. generate two to the power L sequences yes. from L. Uh, is there, and it sort of seemed to fall out of the learning rule that you came up with, so you generated this sparse code from this learning rule. Uh, I was just wondering if, and it, does, it, does it suggest at a very broad level that, you know, if you want to learn, be a, be a bird that learns song throughout life, like all the mimics, uh, the, the mimidae, the mockingbirds and so on, do you choose a non-sparse representation uh, you know, versus a sparse? Uh, I, Right. So I think that, I mean, I think that's a great question. So um, the, the statement, the general statement is just that um, to learn a feed-forward mapping, it's, it's, it can, it's much faster. The problem is an easier computational problem if the representation in the top layer is sparse. That's the general statement, right? And that's just a general statement. Mm -hmm. And um, now in, in Songbird, what we're saying is that all you need to learn in the zebra finch is one, a one-shot mapping from this right. high-level um, uh, temple code to a song. And in that case, it, it, this, the sparse representation is optimal for learning speed. But um, the, the question is, yeah, in birds that are more open-ended learners that learn a bigger right. repertoire of songs, they might evolve a completely different strategy. So what did I mean by sparse coding? I meant that if you look at the whole song, uh, 
the and you look at then the HVC activity, each neuron is active only once, even if in the song the same vocal feature is present twice, for example. Right? It's not correlated right. with the vocal feature. Now in high uh, in in open ended learners that have larger repertoires, um, it could they, they could they could come up with a very different strategy, which is non sparse uh, coding of the song, but just by making a more feature based representation so that the code is tied to the particular vocal feature that's ultimately produced. So it's like a tuning curve. Right. So in well, Zebra Finches, the statement is that it doesn't okay. look like there are no feature related acoustic tuning curves in HVC. And also, it seems to be the case in RA, although I think RA bear, you know, is, can, can afford further analysis. It's not so, so obvious. Well, one way of looking at it, so if you, if you just focus on, on sort of the network models that you're using, and you say, you know, for example, you had a permutation matrix, which was a weight matrix, right? And so essentially, you're generating a pattern from a weight matrix. So you're taking a weight matrix and apply, you generate a certain pattern out of it. So that weight matrix is is permutation, which means it's, it's an orthonormal basis, it's orthogonal matrix, so it's a basis functions are orthogonal, right? Yeah. Uh, which is which is what maybe HVC neurons are. It's just an orthogonal basis. And you select, you know, you know what you turn one on, you turn all the other off, and you have you know, That's orthogonal right. basis function, correct? Uh, but if there were, it was not an orthogonal basis, not a permutation matrix. That's right. Then it would be a non-orthogonal basis, right? That's right. And then the statement is combination of HVC. And then the statement is that learning is still possible, but slower. But slower. That is what I. That that argument I did not get. Yeah. Why is learning? I mean, from a from a theoretical point of view, why is learning faster when you have sparse representation and slower when you have a non-sparse representation? To me, it would be the it would it would seem like to be the opposite. So this is actually one of the questions that I wanted to ask. So. Often people put the to pair sparseness with being in, having independent representations yes. right, for each different thing, right. right. and which is good for lots of things. They don't interfere, but then you don't generalize, right? So that's right. Them, that's that's right. exactly right. right. So, so you, the, you have a trade off between the ability to generalize yes. or, or, or being independent. Yes. But it's interesting that you were, that you're actually viewing the sparseness versus say capacity or learning speed, and right? you actually have all those things. Uh, wrapped up because it depends on the task. So if you're generalizing appropriately, well, that will help speed things up. That's exactly so. That 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 gets to exactly the question that uh, Michael asked earlier, which is, uh, and and you did too, which is um, the question of this tension. What Zebra Finch are doing, they're not generalizers. They're com com completely not generalizing. They're just learning a literal math from one abstract temporal sequence to one sound output. Now, if they were presented with a second tutor song. And suppose even that they had the capacity and the ability to learn it, they would learn it again like a tape recorder. They would literally learn each piece as a new mapping from a new HVC neuron to the new vo vo vocal output. They wouldn't say, aha, this element of the new song has a previously encountered element right. from the old song, so I'm going to call into play the same assembly in HVC that produced that song earlier, I'm going to bring that back in. Right, so that would be a strategy that would be a generalizable strategy. That would be what I was calling a tuning curve strategy, and it's a very different strategy. That's right, and that then the the learning speed arguments go away because, in fact, if you have tuning curves, you can do you can reproduce a new song, you can mimic a newly presented sound very rapidly, which is probably what human infants are able to do. Once they learn how to say certain combinations of sounds, they can I can present them with a new word that they've never heard before, and they could immediately mouth it back to me. Right. So uh, I agree. So the, the argument about um, sparse learning being faster was just if you make non-sparse temporal codes, 
that are ran, you know, random with respect to the features that need to be learned. So um, you don't have multiple activations of an HVC neuron at two times when the features of the two song of the song is the same at those two times. Uh, that that's right. So that's in that regime where sparseness leads to faster learning. But I agree that in in, in birds uh, that have richer vocal repertoires and are fast learners uh, later in life they probably have a wall of the tuning curve strategy. And I think that that makes it very interesting to study birds like nightingales and uh, mockingbirds would, would, would that are be, able to do that. Would the reverse argument hold then? I mean, do you think it holds? Is, or is it too strong to generalize by saying that if you have learners, if you have frozen song, uh, or birds that freeze their song and never never learn new song later on, uh, then they, have, they employ a different code from those that say such as a unary code, as opposed to birds that continue to learn song through life? I would expect so. I mean, this is certainly something that one would predict. Yeah, for oh, just based on capacity arguments alone, it should be a testable. It is. A, it is. Um, so the question is, who is recording an HVC of these other songbirds? And Mark Kanishi Starling, thinks that I mean, Starlings are uh, lifelong learners. I mean, surely people that record from the Starling HVCs, right? No, um, they're just starting. They're just starting. So they're just starting. People are just starting to branch out. So one of the one of the reasons it's pragmatic, that, right? That, it's very yeah, pragmatic. Zebra finches are weird birds, right? Mm -hmm. And partly because they're optimized to be very fast, which is yeah. kind of what you're talking about. But that they're not seasonal and they learn very quickly. Well, and they so, breed. They breed extremely well in captivity, which is one of the main reasons they became this bird. Yeah, and they, they breed fast, like, and, and they but they breed. They mature very yeah. quickly. Uh -huh. So but that's an evolutionary cool. pressure to breed to mature very quickly. Is actually part of the reason that they're used experimentally. So this is correlates to the theoretical right. thing. Why I, I don't think that there's any difference in say song sparrow or white ground sparrows. I mean, you know, which have been the other major systems that have right, been studied. Right, they right, right. have. I mean, irrespective of whether it's a laboratory bird or not, and being overbred. I mean, yeah. It's, uh, okay, so that's an interesting question. So some of the other sparrows that mm -hmm. have very different um, vocal behaviors than zebra finch are different in a subtle way. So um, they they may have the same limited number of syllables as zebra finch. But what they do is they they have more flexible recombinations of the syllables into songs. So they they have more flexible, if I may use the word very um, non technically, grammars. So they actually rearrange and uh, permute mm -hmm. the syllables mm -hmm. that they produce to produce new songs. And so that's much temporally much more complexity in their songs. But maybe again the the actual repertoire size, if we just think about it as the number of distinct syllables and the total integrated time. That those syllables span is is not maybe that different from the zebra finch. No, it's not. They are fixed. It's not. Yeah, uh, they just That's combine right. them or use That's right. produce many more. That's right. That's right. Yeah, but are, do they have HVC neurons that are similar to those of zebra finch? Uh, in the sense so, that well, the only just Jonathan Prather has done a little bit of recording in HVC. Uh -huh. Yeah, and one of the one of the things is they actually trill. They have repeated elements, mm -hmm. and so things will. Be less sparse because it's actually a really a repeat of the same thing. So whether that's sparse or not, right. it's like okay. a different thing. So there's, there's people are also recording in Bengalese finches that have more variable sequences. But again, is it fundamentally different from this, or not? Or not? Or I mean, whether this extra yeah, structure has extra yeah. extra yeah. stuff. Yeah. But to the degree that they've done it, it's it's been fairly. Uh, they the sparring is precise, precise in the sparrows. And the song sparrows that, but that there haven't been a ton of yeah. recording, so yeah. And I think Todd is is a truth that um yeah, in these birds that have more rich uh, sequencing of the existing syllables that they have, um, it's thought that higher level areas are just triggering the same HVC neurons again and again 
uh, areas like Uva or Nif may be responsible for the more rich temporal sequencing, and when those areas are lesioned, then the bird song reverts to mm-hmm. a more zebra finch-like, right. mm-hmm. very poor structure. Yeah. And um, so, in that sense, the, at the HVC level, their code may not be fundamentally distinct, right? It, mm-hmm. uh, it's just a, a small set of discrete elements, and um, that's all the bird ever learns in its life. Um, so is it right to think of the sparse coding HVC as kind of a self network self-organizational tool that lends itself to these sequential uh, chains of activity? I mean, that's, ah, so you're, raising, so you're raising another question, which is um, from the perspective, so right now the question was just a coding question. Why would it, uh, what are the advantages of this code? But it wasn't a dynamical question within HVC, which is how is the code generated and does the sparseness maybe help in wiring up a sequence? In the first place, so I think that's that's a, a separate uh, perspective on sparse coding. That maybe it's easier to generate sparse sequences than dense sequences. Uh, there's definitely work, I guess, the Hotfield network. In in Hotfield networks, I mean, there certainly is a level of sparseness at which you can produce optimally long sequences, reduce interference. Now, not in the synaptic weights for the forward map learning, but actually interference in the different patterns that are encoded in a single recurrent network. The same is so, true in feedforward networks, right? So when you have a three-layer uh, feedforward network, a hidden layer, you can map any continuous function, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, any real continuous function can be mapped as long as you have enough nodes. Yes. But if the, no- the nodes in the input layer are independent, Right in whatever space they're at, uh, the 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 size of the network is the smallest you can have. Right? I mean that is intuitively true. Right, uh, so it, it applies to that too. Right, that's why uh, it seems that this is this it, it, it seems either HVC has already been mapped. Right, because this is HVC is in the uh, going back part of the circuit. Right, it is not the sensory part of the error signal. Right, the the error signal has been parsed, and it has been projected into whatever abstract space, right? And then if you have a small animal that needs to learn fast, then it seems—I mean, this is just a very tiny way the argument—that uh, uh, you will need um, at the end you, you have very very small networks that you have to package in a very small brain, and then uh, sparse codes will be the best. That doesn't have to that doesn't have to be the same, although it might be in grid cells, right? I mean, because now we see these in grid cells, they, and that happens even in rats. Right. So I guess, I guess maybe this is the time to segue to. Okay, so let go. Let it go. So I would argue that in grid cells, grid cell activation is non-sparse. Mm-hmm. It's highly so. Grid cells are um, uh, each cell fires at multiple oh, locations, right? right, right, right? right yeah. And 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 at any given location, multiple cells are firing. In fact, if you look at the firing of, of a that's so, right, place so cells. that's yeah. your one yeah, step yeah. down. That's right. Yeah, exactly. That's right. So that's that's exactly. Yeah, so I would think of grid cells as you know, if you look at the response of a single grid cell, um, its firing fields cover about one third of the total area um, in the space because they, they they fire at every vertex of a triangular lattice, but the the firing uh, the region of firing on each vertex is very wide. The blobs they cover about a third of the whole period, or a little bit third to a fifth of the period. And so, um, yeah, so, so I would say grid cell firing is very dense and uh, place cell firing, as you point out, is the, is the sparse one. And that's the higher level uh-huh. uh, 
firing, right? Is um, it's it's the readout of the grid cell system. The Which cells. there and there is this uh, three. I mean, um, people have argued that there that's where you have uh, three layers uh, network, right? From the entorhinal cortex to CA three, and then it expands back. That's right. To CA one and outside. Right? That's right. So uh, I mean, there are similarities, right? I don't know how. Well, it's, it's interesting that you bring uh, brought that up in the context of song and song learning because there are there are parallels there. So um, the early theories on um, you know Larry Squire and other people have um, made made models of the medial temporal lobe in human memory or in just memory in general um, memory systems. And the general idea of these models is that um, cortical cortical. I, I, so what what binds how so hippocampus is supposed to be the area that binds together and creates episodic memories does pattern completion, right? And the premise is that cortical areas all uh, project to hippocampus, uh, ultimately send their information to hippocampus, and learning uh, of cortico-hippocampal connections is very fast. Those weights are learned very rapidly, and so then hippocampus can then quickly bind together these events um, and different cortical sensory modalities like auditory and visual, and it can take inputs, quickly bind them together by fast LTP in the cortical hippocampal synapses. And then slowly this transference of learning back out of hippocampus, back to cortex, um, and the thought is that hippocampus replays events that are stored, and then slower learning between cortical-cortical connections take place. So eventually the memory that's learned quickly in hippocampus is transferred back out to cortex and becomes hippocampally independent after some time. And um, I think in the context of this bird song and sparseness story, it's that the only reason that the synaptic learning can be fast from cortex to hippocampus is because the hippocampal uh, representations are sparse. Mm -hmm. Because if, if, if they were non-sparse, then learning would be Right for the reasons that you know I was uh, 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 giving is uh, learning will be not not so good um, with with dense representations and maybe that's why cortical cortical connections learn slowly because cortical connections can uh, representations are dense uh, so those are slow learners but the cortical hippocampal ones um, should be fast. Uh -huh. let, me, let me go to the dynamical side. Uh, is is it likely that I mean let's look at the issue of robustness for example. I mean which of the two kinds of representation gives rise to fewer errors? when you have problems in the network. Let's say a neuron is missing, or you know, something goes out of line, or there's just noise in the system. Where do you think the coding is likely to be robust? I would think that it is much better in a more in a, in a more dense representation, like in these grid cells. Because you have many more possible combinations you can choose from, so if you kill a part of the circuit, you know, other, other parts can take over. Whereas that would not be the case with, uh, say, a place representation, right? Well, I think, I think robustness uh, has to be... Um, with respect to a certain noise model or a certain mm -hmm. deletion model, right? So, okay. for example, if we're just talking about a unary chain, like in HVC, um, then if many neurons are part of one node, meaning they're simultaneously active at one time, so the chain is actually like a group of neurons passing on activity to the next group of neurons to the next group, and if those neurons in that node are distributed across the whole area of the brain that's doing this, so they're not locally, uh, neurons that are active at one time are not necessarily co-localized physically in the brain, uh, right? In that case, and then say your noise model is a lesion, like a local small lesion of the brain. That's your model of noise or deletion, right? So you scoop away a small area. Well, that's perfectly robust to that, right? Because typically if you scoop out a small area and the neurons are distributed homogeneously across the whole uh, brain, you're taking out a very small fraction of any of the neurons in a given node. Mm -hmm. And so... 
there are many more neurons that represent that time step or that node, and, and they're robust as well. So I think when we talk about robustness, we have to do it with respect to a particular noise model. And uh, mm -hmm. so, so I mean, we can enumerate that, right? You can have uh, like um, um, in, in terms of these neural networks, right? You can have noise in the setting of the wave, or you can have drift, as yes. if we were in uh, reading just Hebb's book. Right? If you don't use it, you, you lose it. Yes. Right? And then you can have noise, uh, membrane noise. Right? So uh, how will you uh, classify the effects of all these three types of noise in, in this type of learning? Right. Learning so, uh, so for learning, so uh, I, I, can, I can address something about coding. So in, um, in the grid cell system, actually, uh, the question is, why would you represent position? So the grid cell code is, is correlated, the, the, the response of cells is clearly correlated to the location where the animal is in space, right? But location is a single, non-periodic local variable, and you're encoding it by a representation that's non-local in space, right? These grid cell responses are non-local, and they're periodic. Right? What a bizarre code, right? Why would you do this? And I would say um, for noise robustness or robustness to error in representation, what you want is you want your code for a variable. For, for So you have a variable that can have many different values, right? It could take on many different values that are values that you would want to represent. And um, I think a robust code is a code that does not allow, that for a given noise model, doesn't allow that noise to couple one, rep one value of the represented variable with another the noise should not be able to couple those representations together, right? So, what, so given your noise model and given the variable and its values that need to be encoded, you should choose a code that, so that the given noise does not allow you to couple the representations uh, for the variable that you want. Okay, so because right. noise should not allow you to transition from one representation to the next. Oh, but noise can allow you to avoid local minima, right? Whenever you are... Doing your learning, right? You can but, apply but it on learning, right? So, right, right, right. Not, not We're just talking yeah, about representation. representation right? Well, but everything is together, right? Everything. No, but learning is the process of how you represent something, right? But I'm just talking at just independent of learning mechanisms. I'm just saying, suppose just optimal coding theory. Suppose you want to encode 10 values. I want to represent the values 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 using some code, okay? And um, there are many ways to encode like the numbers, like integers, right? I could use decimal, any fixed base number system, or I could use very different, um, I could use a unary code, which is, you know, one neuron on for number one, the second one on for number two, the third one on for number three, and so on. That would be like a unary HVC code, mm -hmm. okay? So now to represent n numbers, I would need n neurons, okay, if it's the, if it's the unary code. But um, with the decimal representation, I only need how many digits do I need, right? I need log base 10 of the, of the n, where if I want to represent a number as big as n. I just need, right, I just need, for 1 million, I just need six registers to represent it, right? So it's a very compact, so capacity-wise, the base n systems are much more compact, uh, and so on. But on the other hand, if I make a, now let's talk about noise models, right? If I, if I say that any single, uh, single register perturbation is allowed, Okay, so it's equally likely my noise model is such that if I write down some number n in decimal representation, and now I suppose I have a noise model that says that any of the uh, registers can be uh, can have an error in them by one, right? So now I could write the number two million and one, and now if I change the ones digit by one, 
I don't have a big uh, effect in what's represented. I go from two million and one to two million maybe, or two million and two. That's not too bad. But now suppose that error comes in in my biggest uh, register. Now suddenly I have three million and one versus two million and one, which is a huge error, right? So now that's the point. So it's the coding scheme uh, has to be robust. So this is a coding scheme, the, the, the integer system coding scheme with decimals is not robust to noise in certain of the registers. So, no, but I was just saying, it, it reminded me of error correction codes used in transmission of bits. So, if yes. you, have, you don't want an error in the least, in the most significant byte, you want an error in the that's least right. significant byte. That's right. That's right. But I mean, you know, there are the problems. I mean, the problems are very different. In here, in this particular case, you don't really know what the error, you don't know what the, what you're, whether, what you're coding, you have no reference to correct it to something that is to, you know, so for example, let me say the parity, parity checking in, 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 bit, in standard bit transmission, you have parity bits, and you can always compare the received bits to the parity That's bits right. to see where you made an error, but you don't have that kind of luxury here with the brain, right? Well, I'd like to argue actually exactly the opposite. I'd like to argue that the grid cell code mm -hmm. for position mm -hmm. is an exact error correcting code. You mean? So, uh, okay. so this is what I'd like to argue. And so it employs something like a having sort of what, what I mean, That's how right. do you argue? I, I, okay, so I can, I can construct the argument for you if you'd like. Okay, sure. Okay, so um, let's just think about position in 1D. So say, forget 2D position. Let's say position is just a number from, you know, X. X is the position. It goes from zero to some value. Okay, and now what are the grid cells coding? The grid cells are coding. There's a set of neurons that have a given period. So uh, there's a set of neurons that fire when the animal is at x, or x plus lambda, or x plus 2 lambda, etc., with some periodicity lambda, okay? And within the same population, there's another neuron, a set of neurons that has the same period, but a different phase, which means they, they just shift, they just have a spatial shift. So they'll fire when the animal is at uh, 1, lambda plus 1, 2 lambda plus 1, 3 lambda plus 1, and so on. So the population of all cells that have the same period are only encoding position as a phase, okay, after a phase with respect to the spatial period, okay? So that's, you do modulo, you do x modulo lambda, and the remainder is a phase, and that's what uh, the grid cells are coding that have the period lambda. And it turns out that they're grid cells that have not just one period, but they're cells that have a set of uh, different periods. And there's a set of different periods that are there. So suppose there are a set of periods lambda 1 up to lambda n. There are n different periods. Okay, so then you take any number x and you represent it by x mod lambda 1, x mod lambda 2, okay. up to x mod lambda n. So you take the scalar x and you represent it by a vector of phases. Okay. Okay, it's just a set of phases. And in fact, let's make them normalized phases. Let's make it x mod lambda 1 divided by lambda 1. So these are just, each things have only 0, 1, between 0 and 1. So this code actually turns out, if we consider x's that are just integers, suppose, for simplicity, and suppose that the periods are also integers, and they're relatively prime to each other, prime numbers relative to each other, this code is actually um, um, known in computer science as a residue number system code. Okay, it's like taking a number and representing it by its residues after modular division by uh, a, a number. And um, so, okay, so what is the capacity of this code? So this code can actually encode um, a, a range of positions uniquely from zero up to some number big R, and the big R is the product of all the lambdas, okay? So that means this number, the range, scales like lambda to the n, if there are n different periods, and all the lambdas are about the same size which is the case in these grid cells. The animals, the rats, 
range over um, 100 meters or so um, per day. But the, the biggest grid is probably between 1 and 10 meters. Okay, so each grid period is much smaller than its range, and they're all about the same size, of all order 1 meter. Okay, and so, so this is a residue number system code. And um, it's, it, actually, these uh, residue number system codes are error correcting codes if the range of positions in which you want to encode position is smaller than the full range that those uh, periods can represent. So I told you that the full range R that these periods can represent is the product of all the lambdas. It scales, it's combinatorial in the number of periods. So it's lambda to the n. But if you, um, let's say that the rat, the animal, never cares to represent any positions over that full range. Suppose it only cares to represent positions over a smaller range, R is permitted. R permitted, a smaller range than R. Okay, then it turns out that there, uh, the information that's encoded in all those different periods uh, of grid cells, it's a bit, there's a bit of redundancy there because they, they're capable of encoding over all R, but they're encoding over a smaller uh, permitted range. And so that means uh, redundancy gives some potential for correction or reduction of errors, right? But that doesn't say that it's a good code or not. I mean, after all, um, you could repeat, you could take a symbol uh, if you want to transmit two bits, zeros or ones, you could take the zero and transmit it four times. And then you take the maximum, you know, in the end, you might get a zero, zero, one, zero, because one of the bits has flipped because of error. But uh, you could do a max a majority operation and say the majority output is the output. And then you would be right many of the times. But it turns out that that code is not an efficient code in the language of uh, error correcting codes because it um, asymptotically has zero error, uh, zero information rate for for um, if you want to achieve zero error in your reconstruction. So the the claim is that um, by doing this restriction and using this this residue number system code, it's actually um, an, it's actually an efficient error correcting code, uh, uh, and it comes close to saturating uh, the Shannon bound as close okay. as many state of the art I didn't know that. codes. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So it's a very it's it's an amazing code. So it actually allows almost exact correction of errors in all the all the phase representations of X. And why is it useful, right? Why, why would you want to correct errors? It's because these grid cells are not just representing a position X, given that they know where X is. Actually, what each set of grid cells seems to be doing, the consensus, uh, emerging consensus, is that grid cells are the integrators, uh, uh, velocity to position integrators. So even when the animal's moving around in the dark, it's able to use idiothetic cues and integrate um, and estimate where the animal now is. And the thought is that each network of grid cells with one period does an independent uh, estimate of the integrated position and then represents it as a modulo. But each one is independently noisy. We know that in neural integrators are just noisy and prone to error because errors just accumulate. They just add up on and on and on, and they get worse and worse. And so if you could take each of these noisy estimates of position and then do error correction on that and actually estimate what the true position of the animal is at any given point using these error correcting codes. So it's not about information transmission, but it's about correcting information at, you know, to... At, but like physiologically, time. where will that error correction entail? Right, okay, so the code of grids, I'm, I'm arguing that the grid cell code is an error correcting code, but right. you're right, that to do the error correction, you need an inference, you need a right. code. And that's the argument is that what place cells are doing, right. are place cells are actually doing that inference step. They're right. the ones that are... Um, are, are doing the correction. And exactly. So that's the argument. Okay. And, and then the place cells actually feed back. So hippocampus feeds back into the deep layers of the entorhinal cortex. Right. 
And um, the hypothesis is that they're feeding back. If they just feed back with the transpose of the weights that feed forward into them, then they can reset the phases to the correct, the inferred correct value. Mm -hmm. And then as long as this loop happens frequently enough, there's not enough time for enough errors to accumulate that cannot be corrected. So, so has that been seen? Do you put a, a run all day long and do they, does the uh, 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 breed cell of a particular set of cells drift? You know, and then it gets reset? Does it have like uh, some kind of face? That's a great question. Um, so sadly, uh, okay, so um, people have tried to put animals in the dark and measure mm -hmm. the grid cells, but Sadly, those experiments have not been done in control conditions where the other external sensory cues have been removed, like olfactory cues. That's so, very different. I mean, that's and, true and, for and, and, everything, right? I mean, like. Uh, but they're drawn. Uh -huh. But but it's important because it, the whole the whole exactly. I think that's that's exactly the kind of thing one would want to test. I mean, play cells. Yes. Are, the experiments that have determined play cells suffer of the same problems, right? I mean, removing the the smell in any of these experiments. Actually, it turns uh, out that they're nice drugs that you can inject into. Um, into that the, the, the abolish uh, olfactory feedback. Okay. And so that would be the ideal experiment. You can. Maybe it's possible use to that, do these. Right? So, I mean, but, uh, but the, I think these are the questions that now, with the theory in quantitative neuroscience, can usher in a new era mm -hmm. where, hmm. um, you know, we actually try to make now quantitative mm -hmm. recordings. So, 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 We'll go ahead. Oh no! Just one quick question. So you're saying you're ruined. Was go ahead. <laughs> okay. No, the, so you're suggesting that the place cells provide some kind of a parity check to the grid. Is that? Uh, I, is I'm that saying yes. I'm saying place cells are the inference step uh, for it's 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 a maximum likelihood um, inference step of the so error of the noisy grid cell code. So they provide right. a way to correct any errors. That That's happen. right. So I think the correctability is because of the coding, the specific coding in grid cells. That is the error-correcting code, but right for the actual correction step, you need this inference, and this maximum likelihood inference is is, is provided by um, by the place. And what type of weight distribution you will need uh, for that first layer? I mean, from the entorhinal cortex to the uh, uh, to 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 CA three. You don't need too much. You don't need it's kind of like a special thing. Uh -huh. One way to think about if you if you have so a bunch of different, code and different and things on different periods, if you have phase coherence, they all line up in one spot. That's right. And then they're yeah. inciting one thing. And if you take the phase of any single one of and those and shift them by a little bit, it doesn't it doesn't kill that that peak that much. That's okay. right. And that depends on how much over redundant how much redundancy you have, how much oversampling. So yeah. if you have enough yeah. extra periods so compared to the noise model, yeah. yeah that's and exactly all the right. point is you want the phases, the 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 cycles of the different things. Be non-coherent, so that if they both drift, you don't get another coherent. Uh, well, that's what they uh, call prime, right? That's yeah, that's right. So, 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 so I, should, I should mention that we can relax all that and make it all real numbers. That's right. So we 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 have generalization of all these concepts to the real numbers. Okay. And um, and and qualitatively, everything still works. It's difficult to make uh, a priori. Um, it's it's it, we cannot make a close form. Um, statements about um, how much redundancy, so the minimum, it's a minimum distance separation code. So we can't make closed form statements about what that minimum distance is, but we can numerically compute it. That's right, but it all generalizes to the real line. Um, yeah. So just in closing, uh, I, I just wanted to, it's not obvious here, but you, you've spoken in, in the past about a cultural and technical gap between biologists and more numerically oriented uh, scientists like physicists and math people and how a common language is necessary. 
to really effectively monitor So you're saying that, that nobody else is going to understand this podcast? I think they tune out. They tune out. We stacked the deck here. Um, so I, I just want to, because you have a kind of a cool story, I just want to see how your training is, has um, lent itself to bridging this gap. And I guess all of you kind of share this experience a bit. But um, and more, more specifically, I just want to sense that, or I just want to get a sense from you that, that despite these cultural differences, as you call them, how do you generally tend to find now that your priorities line up well with biological, traditional biological scientists, or is there, you know, how, how do you... I mean, I see a beautiful convergence. I, th- I think, I think, um, I think cultural differences were in a sense practically driven. I think there was a big gap between what we could theorize and what could be measured. And I think that gap is closing. And I think of necessity, um, our language is going to converge, and I think our techniques are going to converge, and I think um, we're going to be increasingly thinking about the same questions. So, uh, I mean, I certainly don't know that many theorists who are uninterested in experiment. Every theorist I know um, is intensely exp- interested in experimental data, attends a lot of experimental techniques, talks, um, and so on. And many of the experimentalists I know are similarly getting very interested in um, in theory. So I'm very optimistic. I think I think um, now as biology gets more and more data rich, I think it's going to be inevitable that theorists and experimentalists will right. But that, that is true in biology so, in general now, in but general. not in, other, in neurophysiology where the amount of data you can collect is still equivalent to the amount of data we were collecting. 30 years ago, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. that is true in systems biology. But I think biology, that's changing. I think that's going to change in neuroscience. I mean, with the new imaging, the new revolution yeah, yeah, the imaging in specific areas, but where we that's need right. it is like uh, um, in knowing, for example, where the play cells are and how they are connected, mm-hmm. right? At least their anatomy, so the connectome, right? Yes. And uh, we're not... I, I don't know of anybody... Well, there's only... Uh, what's his name in... Uh, in uh, Genelia Farms, right? He's working on one cubic millimeter, right, for the last several years to try to get all the connections, right? And how many cubic millimeters are in the brain, right? <laughs> of a mouse or of a zebrafinch. Right? In, yeah. in, in, going back to your zebrafinch um, uh, uh, work, we don't know the, the, not even the general an- anatomy or, abor- or axonal arborizations of these cells. That's a huge uh, um, setback, or it, it's a it's a huge slowdown, right? Compared to systems biology, when we can now get a whole human gene chip and run it every day. Well, I think your statement is accurate um, ref- because it reflects the current situation. But I think that's changing so rapidly. I think I think neurobiology is on a path towards becoming as data rich as systems biology is right now. I mean, I think. Um, you know, Bill Gates said that 256 kilobytes ought to be enough for anybody. And within 10 years, he was so grossly wrong that it's not even a joke now, right? So I think the same is going to be true for neurobiology data. And uh, I'm very optimistic. I mean, it's true in, in imaging, right? Yeah. I mean, that's where the explosion of uh, and, and, and that includes um, it, it includes imaging of activity, right? Because right, because you have become almost like as a physical chemical problem, right? I mean, you put a sample in which you put single molecules and you can trace them. That's right. Now and you can get tons of data yeah. from from that. Yeah, yeah. So so I think it's converging. And that's why. <laughs> Thanks so much, Elafit. Thanks a lot. lot of fun. It's been neuroscience talk show.